Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of To Be Determined with Bill and Dan. Reporting from the bottom of the world this time. And why? Because we are talking about a story that's been voted one of the most influential novellas of all time in science fiction. There's there's quite the claim to fame, I suppose. It's a, a novella called Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr., and oddly enough, I had never read this story before. I mean, I've, I've known John Campbell as, you know, the editor of Astounding Science Fiction. He was the mentor for so many early science fiction authors, but I had never actually read this story by him, interestingly enough. And if you're not familiar with the title, I guarantee you that you're familiar with the concept because this story has been done or has influenced other creators in so many ways. Most notably is that this is the novella from which the 1951 film The Thing from Another World was made and that was later redone in 1982 starring Kurt Russell in the film called The Thing. And then remade again in 2011, also called The Thing, which I would think that our listeners would probably probably be more familiar with. That's entirely possible. And funny thing there, I've seen the first two, but not the 2011 remake. I have not seen it either. I simply know of it. So we love to make movies out of this. So the basic premise of this novella, and like the movies, if you've seen them, it's pretty simple. There's a bunch of people. They went down to the Antarctic. They study a bunch of stuff. They've got biologists and physicists and mechanics and cooks and all this stuff that goes into making an expedition to the Antarctic. They're down there, and they apparently run across this crashed spaceship which is, you know, completely baffling as to why it's there. They do find there's this one alien who somehow has come out of the spaceship, is, you know, he's a little bit out into the wilderness, frozen to death, and they are determining whether or not they need to bring this alien and kind of figure out whether it makes sense to bring him back up to room temperature and see what happens. And of course they do. And of course, lots of stuff happens because we wouldn't have a story if it didn't. So yeah, when they're out on the expedition, they're cruising across the the frozen, not tundra, but the, you know, the, the Arctic ice shelf, whatever it is, Antarctic ice shelf. They see this depression. Inside of it, they see a shape. They toss a couple bombs in there because of course that's what you do. And they realize, hey, yeah, when everything lights up, they can see the shape of the spaceship. And then they've got two different kinds of bombs with them. And one of them are thermite bombs. They drop some thermite bombs in there, and it ignites the hull of the spaceship because it's made out of magnesium. Which I can't quite figure out. It's like, why do you build your spaceship out of this massively flammable metal? But hey, they're aliens. Maybe it's different on their world, but it just seemed a little odd to me. They blind themselves, melt a bunch of ice, burn up the spaceship. But in the process, they see this body that's also encased in ice, and it's all twisted and gnarly and, and, and all messed up. And they figure out that, well, they, they, they jump to the conclusion that it must be the pilot of the spaceship that they just destroyed. So they pack it in a tarp, haul it back to base camp, toss it onto the table that the cook uses in the kitchen to prepare their food, because <laughs> that's a detail that I loved. Aliens are always very sanitary, apparently. Well, it turns out that they do everything interesting on there, whether it's, um you know, Killing things, cleaning things, you know. That's the only big table they got, apparently. You know, tables are apparently at a premium somewhere in the Antarctic. I don't know why, but it just is. 
So they bring everybody together to have a talk about it. And so that's a good cue for us to introduce at least who some of those everybodies are. In the, in the novella, there are 37 members of the expedition. Not all of them are named. We'll list a few of the core key people. But one of the things that we discovered as we were reading this through a couple times is that there are so many characters in this that it's actually kind of hard to keep track of everybody. But we've got Blair, who's a biologist, Clark, who's a dog handler, and most of them, by the way, we just know by their last names. We have Dr. Copper, who is the camp physician, Gary or Commander Gary, who's the expedition commander, Kenner, who's a cook, referred to peculiarly as the scar-faced cook. Maybe he's like an Al Pacino type guy. Yeah, I just thought that was a weird detail. The second in command is a is a dude named McCready, who they keep just referring to as a bronze giant. So his beard is bronze colored, his eyes are bronze colored, his skin is bronze colored, and he's very statuesque. He's this massive. He's a manly man. He's a manly man in a big parka. We've got Norris, who's also a manly man. He's a he's a giant physicist. Uh, he referred to in one place as the muscular physicist. Apparently, you got to be really big to go to the Antarctic. Well, except Blair, they describe as this tiny little bird-like man with little claw-like hands. So, you know, he's the exception, apparently. Well, then we've got Van Wall, the pilot, a bunch of others that, that some get named in passing, like Dutton, for example, gets named right before we learn that he's a... Well, before he dies. And then, of course, we've got a husky. One of them is given the name Sharnock, the lead of the sled dog team, and like the alpha dog of their little their little pack. And then the thing itself, the alien creature. Yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff and a whole lot of people going on, and, and Campbell does not shy from throwing a whole lot of information at the reader pretty damn quick. And if you start reading this, I mean, I was like looking at, I was reading this novel thinking, do I need to have a whiteboard with all these names written down and a bunch of strings to connect them to figure out what's going on? It, he, it's 40 pages long and, and he throws a lot of information about all these people and what happens to them over the course of the story. And one of the things I found is that some of the stuff, there are things that people say out loud and it's, it's signaled as traditional dialogue. And there's internal dialogue, which is harder to discern, but there's a lot of key information. So I found myself rereading passages. Wait, was he thinking or did somebody say that out loud or did that just happen? So the, it, it was difficult. Like I, I read it through quickly because we were trying to determine if we wanted to, to do an episode, which of course we actually did. Then I watched the movie, then I read it again, and then I read it again. And through all of that, I feel like I kind of understand the story now, but that's a lot of effort to come back to feeling like you kind of understand the story. Yeah, so I, I know we, we, we recommend these stories that people listen or people that are listening to us, we'd like them to go read this. And this is kind of just a fair warning. This is, I mean, it's 1938, right? And I'll be you know, perfectly honest, I have a hard time reading a lot of the very early science fiction. This is actually a very readable story. It's, it's intelligently written, it makes sense, but you really have to apply yourself to figure out what's going on in this story. He's not someone who leaves his readers unchallenged. Like, I don't mean that he sets out to baffle us or anything like that. 
but he's in, he's introducing a lot of science. He's he's got a lot of basic principles that people are operating on on, and there's just there's there's a lot going on. So yeah, you, you got to pay attention, or you've got to give yourself time to pause, digest, and maybe even reread. Yeah. So looping back into what's going on in the story, right? They've taken this alien, they've brought him back or it back to the camp, and they're debating whether or not they should thaw the alien out or not. And this leads to a kind of spirited debate as to whether it contains bacteria or viruses that could potentially infect humans, various other reasons, pro and con. And of course, this being 1938, they can't just, you know, call the scientists back in their home countries and ask for any advice. They're completely on their own and they have to kind of figure this out by themselves. And Blair, the biologist, Ultimately, he presents the arguments that win where he says, there's no place in the universe that we know of. There's the, there's the key. There's no place in the universe that we know of where something that's a complex organism can be frozen solid and be reanimated upon coming back to life. And, you know, someone says, wait, what about a fish? We've seen fish frozen and then they start flopping around. And, the, and Blair says, yeah. But it never really comes back the same, and it's a pretty simple organism. We're talking about something complex here, something that can, you know, that has lungs and that has a heart and that has a brain, and we have no record of anything like that coming back from being frozen solid. So yeah, Blair Blair wins the day essentially. They say, you know, against the objections of some of the other members of the expedition, they go and decide, yep, let's thaw the dude out and see what happens. They begin this process, and. Yeah, there's a little bit of dialogue about stuff happening, which is not really relevant. But the next big scene is essentially there was a guy who was, uh, I guess he was assigned to watch the thawing process, which must be like watching paint dry, like watching an ice cube melt. But the next thing you see is this guy trying to wake Blair up saying, hey, your little experiment has escaped. And oddly enough, the guy who does this is somebody that we left out of the character list. It's a gentleman named, by the name of Conant. He was the guy that was arguing with them about whether or not they should thaw him out, right? Yeah, he, yeah. Conant and Norris were were the two that were that were most vocally against it. Oh, well, I suppose Doctor Copper was against it as well. So there's definitely some camps here. Well, but Conant is the guy who. So he's a he studies magnetic waves. What we learn later is that he fell asleep and he wakes up supposedly and discovers that the thing is gone. Well, that's the story that he tells. What we actually know is that he hears this water dripping and he walks over and he's staring at the thing and it has these three little glowing red eyes. Well, maybe not glowing, but they they, they give off the impression of, of glowing. And he stares into the eyes and he begins somewhere in his head to recognize that the thing isn't really dead, but he turns around, walks away, goes back and sits at his desk. We're supposed to know by this that something happened, but we get thrown some contradictory information by Campbell, and we're not really sure. Is Conant, is he the thing? Has he been taken over? Is he still Conant? What's really going on? But the, the we're thrown into doubt, but it's one of the first times in the story that we get information that leads us astray and where we don't know where we're going with it. 
So, of course, you know, the idea that this alien is out there and on the loose is is pretty disconcerting to these these individuals. And they said, let's go out and, and find them. And, of course, at the same time, they hear all the dogs, sled dogs barking outside. They figure that this must be where the alien has gone. They go to investigate. And then we find out something very interesting about the abilities that the alien has. So the dogs have been attacking this thing and fighting it and tearing into it, and there are bits and chunks of alien laying around. But we also see when they uh, the humans get there and they start participating in this, and they bring some quick makeshift weapons with them. And as they're as they're attacking this thing and damaging this thing and presumably killing it, don't they electrocute it at the end? Is that how they do it? Yeah, they've got some sort of like giant cattle prod that they make out of a pitchfork that's that's wired to their generator somehow by a giant extension cord is what it sounds like. And as they're poking this thing with it, its body begins to shift and transform and, and it's taking on different shapes and showing different like feathers and scales and stuff like that. So it's weird. In the movie it goes right into dog form. And that's not actually what happens in in the original novella, but they, they recognize that it has the ability to transform its body and that it's basically made up of what well, they keep referring to it later on as protoplasm. So it has the ability to sort of flow and then reform into whatever shape it it might want to take. And it takes shapes based on things that it has encountered. Now, of course, this leads to some other problems, as you may guess, which is all the humans go, hey, if this alien can take any form, it could take a human form. And we don't really know what happened from the time it thawed out and woke up. So now it's completely possible that one or none or lots of different people could actually be an alien. Right, and so they realize that people have been like scattered and, and all over the compound and that they don't know how long the alien has been out from its original place under the tarp. And so everyone suddenly is suspect. First one, of course, is Conant, being as he's the one who fell asleep in the room with it. And then, you know, but the thing that they can't, that they can't really reconcile is that Conant seems like himself. Yeah, he's got all his normal memories, he's got, he acts just like a regular person, and they can't conceive that an alien could somehow instantaneously take over a human and completely mimic that human to the last detail, you know, down to the memories, the mannerisms, the, the patterns of speech, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so now we get a really curious kind of revelation through the character of Blair that comes along in around here, where Blair begins talking about the alien in ways that make it seem like he knows more than he should. And it slowly comes out that the alien, when it was frozen, was conscious or was sentient and was able to read their thoughts and project thoughts to them. And, and it's Blair who says that it's telepathic and it was projecting stuff at us. So they come away, McCready, Norris, a couple of the others, and Blair all had nightmares while they were on their journey back from this site where they recovered the, the alien from. And they figure out later that they weren't really nightmares. They were projections of thoughts from the beast. And it was revealing things about itself and about its species to them that they were processing as dreams 
So now we're in this situation, right, where no one can really trust each other. They don't know who's an alien, who's not an alien, and they begin to start devising these, I wouldn't call them elaborate tests, but you know, basic tests to try to figure out if you can determine who's what. If they're looking at these different blood tests, taking samples from the dogs, taking samples from the humans, and you know they, they think they come up with a way to do it. They figure out, well, you know, their first pass, they go, oh, this guy's got to be an alien. Oh, wait, no, they turn out it can't be an alien. And they start going, you know, they really start getting suspicious of each other. They, they have to pair up or travel in packs of four so nobody can ever be out of sight of anybody else to make sure that, you know, if anybody is an alien, that they can't try to take somebody else over. Um, this just leads to some very odd social situations as they try to, to get their minds around how they can figure out who's who. Well, and one more key scene that involves Blair as this stuff is all getting ready to transpire. So they're, they're devising their test and they're going to use the serum from dog blood and the serum from human, well, people that they might suspect as, as having been taken over by the alien and people that they suspect haven't. So they're going to see if they can make comparisons. Well, as they're devising this test, Blair, the biologist... He loses it. He Yeah, he loses it. He literally goes insane from the stress of the situation, from guilt of having been the one who argued to bring this alien thing back. And he's the one, for some reason, that sees the end game, the possible cataclysmic level of it, that if this alien gets out, it's telepathic. It has the ability to shape shift. It could easily take over the entire planet. And so he comes to the conclusion that none of them can ever leave this research base. They have to find a way to find the thing and kill it, but that they can't trust that any of the humans left are actually humans. So everybody has to die. And doesn't he go like sabotage all the airplanes too and tear out the equipment so nobody can leave? He breaks the radio, he breaks the, the, the equipment that allows things like their tractor to, to drive and their, their helicopter to fly or their plane to fly, whichever it is that they have. He sabotages a bunch of stuff. He comes back and he's then intent, he's going he's gonna to start killing people and they sedate him. They, um, they just kind of sit on him basically, not, not literally, but figuratively for a, a little bit while they figure out what to do. And then they wall him into one place, like they, they kind of bolt him in and then the conant they wind up sticking in a different place so that they isolate these two people that they're worried about one because they think he's nuts one because he might be an alien and then they go about building their test so you've got these people sequestered in these like little tiny boxes out you know somewhere on the plains of antarctica and we proceed with all these different tests right the first ones come back they're not conclusive well, and conveniently, the tests take a week to run, and week magically passes. Yeah, but during that week, it seems like other things do happen. And yeah. again, with the writing, it's kind of unclear what's going on at some points in time. They make these references to apparently all the dogs end up turning into aliens or, or dying, and they have to kill all of them. Somehow they apparently have cows at the South Pole, which is, I'm not sure how they do that. But they go through this whole series where the cow somehow turns into an alien and they're all concerned because they're drinking the milk and maybe the mil it's alien milk. And there's just some really weird stuff that goes on during this week. And it's not really clear 
What's transpired? And so, and along the way, they stop checking in on Blair. Conant is walking around among them. Yeah, they kill all the dogs. They kill all the cows. And then everybody comes in for the big reveal. And it turns out that they can't tell if anybody's an alien or who's, who's, who's a human still. Until they come up with the final test. They're, they go back to square one, kind of. And, and the one that everything falls on is McCready. So McCready's the guy who's... He's almost like if you've ever read any of the classic Pulp Fiction stuff, Doc Savage, who's this bronze giant. Like I, I'm, I'm assuming that McCready is kind of an homage to Doc Savage from the, um, I can't think of the guy who wrote those books at the moment, Kenneth Robeson. There we go. Anyway, he's this guy who, before he became a meteorologist, he thought about becoming a doctor, and so he went through a lot of, a lot of the pre-med stuff, and and so they all turn to him and basically say giant bronze man who is bit more human and manly than all of us. Save us, giant bronze us. man. Yes, exactly. So it's very Pulp Fiction in that regard. And he, they they have a movie night to give him time to think. <laughs> it's just a hilarious little... <laughs> because why not? <laughs> it's just, a, it's such a goofy little detail. And as movie night is going, he hatches a plot. Then everybody gets called back together. And it turns out that what he's going to try to do, he is, he is determined that... Every little bit of the organism that leaves the host body becomes, in effect, a replicant organism. An independent, intelligent exactly. entity. Exactly. There you go. And that he's like, okay, if we just take a little bit of blood or a little bit of sampling from everybody, and we try to, I guess, what do they do? They try to shock it or hit it with a red-hot poker or something. Yeah, he hits it with yeah. He heats up a, a platinum wire and drops. And they it figure the that if it tries to run away, i.e., has you know exhibits some kind of intelligence, then obviously the person who gave that sample is an alien, and off with their head. And so, as they 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 test the first couple people that that McCready believes are are human, and it turns out that he's right. And he says, "Well, I know that I'm a human, so I'll test myself." And he sticks a knife in his thumb and. Sure enough, it turns out he's human as well. Well, the first guy that they go to test, I think, is Conant. And before they can even test him, he reveals himself to be alien. But then this weird moment happens where the other humans in the room, and you remember that there are, there are 36 30, of them at uh, this yeah. point, because one is, yeah, one Blair is off in his little, his little um, hut. And so 36, some of them are aliens and some are not. And a bunch of them descend on Conant and with their bare hands rip him apart. It's weird, grisly, and brutal, and it's like an afterthought. Yeah, and you're like, wait a second, if if the alien if getting the alien goo on you can turn to use can turn you into an alien, wouldn't that be like the last thing you want to do? And how does tearing the thing apart kill it? Because if all the little bits and pieces of an alien can just turn into other aliens, that doesn't seem to like do anything. But anyway. Well, but then they take, so they've got this blowtorch that they that they got for melting ice that they turn into a weapon, and they've got their their um, electronic pitchfork, and they go around and they're burning and stabbing all the little parts of the alien that they tear apart. So they they're finally satisfied that they've not just rendered this guy, but they've they've killed all of the individual little parts, and then they're like, well, okay, well, who's next? Yeah, well, it turns out there's, what, 14 other ones or 13 other ones that turn out to be aliens, and we don't figure out, I mean, it's not really talked about how they killed the other 13. I assume it was in some other equally gruesome manner. 
Right. And it's like from one paragraph to next, 14 of them are dead. And, and they're just looking back, well, that was easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little odd. And so then they're going, oh, hey, what about Blair? We forgot about Blair. And so the, the biologist that they've locked in a hut after yeah, all like a week this, ago. Right. So then they figure out, oh, we better go check on this dude and, and make sure he's okay. And so a bunch of them, well, a small handful of them, the, the ones that have names, head out to this hut. Yeah, like McCready and, and Norris and Barkley. Yeah, Van Wall might be one of them as well. I forget. No, or Van, ah, I can't remember Van Wall. He's the, the pilot. See, that, there's part of the problem. I can never remember who was and who was not an alien after the, after the 14 died. Well, so anyway... They start undoing the door so that they can go in and they can tell that something's going on and then this funky blue light that's coming through well, the Well, wait, hold on a door. second. We didn't talk about the albatross yet. Oh, you're right. So as they're standing outside, yeah, talk about that. Yeah, they. Um, so one of the big things, obviously, was they've realized that the alien can basically turn itself into any form. They obviously don't want it to escape, and then they realize, hey, spring is coming, and with spring, animal life returns to Antarctica. Some of those things are birds. The alien could theoretically say, ooh, I can turn myself into that and just you know, fly off of Antarctica and, again, go through their evil plan to take over the human race if that is indeed their plan. So as they're going out to find Blair... They see the albatross. It's the first, you know, harbinger of spring. And they're like, oh, crap, we got to do something quick or we're all screwed. And one guy just like, oh, I got this, pulls out his gun, kills the albatross and says, all right, we're good here. And then they go on to see if they can find Blair. Yeah. And so that's that's when they, they see the blue light coming under the door, this funky, eerie blue light. And that spurs them to action there. They're taking apart the door. Da, 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 da. You can hear the theme music, you know, churning in the background. They pull open the door. It's been barricaded from the inside by Blair. They bust it down. And Blair just... Blair isn't Blair at this point. He's a thing. He is some funky alien. He's a thing. He's got tentacles, and he's got talons, and he's got eyes, and and he lashes out. And so we've got this little pitched battle between the humans and the alien. And the alien dies. With, of course, using, what, a huge blowtorch. So... <laughs> I guess that's the, the if you got to kill aliens, bring a blowtorch. That that seems to do it every time. And so they realize as they're, after they're satisfied that he's killed and they're they're frying him and they're they're cooking him and, and making sure that he's good and dead, and they start investigating the hut, and they, it, they begin to process, wow, we left this guy alone for a week. Somewhere in there he got taken over by the alien, and he's been sneaking out because he can change his form and like ooze under the door and stuff like that. And he's been gathering up all the parts from the broken machinery and he's been assembling this thing that, well, I shouldn't use the word thing. He's been assembling a device in this little hut and it turns out he's made a mini atomic generator and an anti-gravity suit. Right. And they're like, oh crap, we just got to this guy in time. If it had been another, you know, 30 minutes, he would have completed his little anti-gravity device, been able to fly away, and then it's pretty much game over for the human race. And so that it ends with this sort of epic dun-dun-dun kind of thing where they realize, wow, we, we, we saved the planet. And there we go. Wow. There's a lot, a lot of stuff going on in the story, like we said, but it's also very simple. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's fairly straightforward. It takes a, a while to, to play out because of the way that he has constructed the story. Although there's some confusion and there's some moments where it's like, oh, we just jumped from F to G or F to G, F to X or something. <laughs> yeah, F to G, that's a big jump there, Bill. Yeah, <laughs> we make some pretty pretty wild leaps in, in plot line a few times. But beyond that, it's a really interesting story that has some pretty complex concepts for 1938. It's it's no wonder that this thing has been so influential to so many writers. I mean, looking at some of the things that we could compare it to, like you said, it's been remade into a couple of different movies. But yeah, if you look at the overall themes of, of how the story is put together, you've got the small, isolated band of people with you know no help on the horizon, facing this either supernatural or alien force that they have to somehow overcome and save the human race. And I'm sure that, you know, that plot line doesn't sound familiar to anybody out there. (laughs) It's never been done before. Never been done before. Well, probably in 1938, it hadn't been done before, which is why, like you said, this story is, you know, pretty phenomenal in what it's able to do for that time period. You know, they're able to, it postulates, Alien life, aliens crashing on Earth, being able to, uh, you know, transmogrify themselves into humans, uh, all sorts of things that in 1938 are are pretty out there from a from a reader's standpoint. Right. I mean, considering that this is many many years before we've gone to the moon, we we may have dreamt it at that point, but we hadn't done it, and so interstellar travel. I mean, they, they still make reference to how it might have come from Venus or it might have come from Mars or something like that. So they're still looking at our solar system, I suppose, for the most part as, as possible sources for this creature. Yeah, and it is interesting. Like At that last part of the story, they realize that it came from a, a completely different solar system entirely, a, a, a system with a blue or bluer sun. And, you know, like you said, I Way, way back in the day when we talked about uh, the first Arthur C. Clarke story we did and the realization that the, the alien base on the moon wasn't from the solar system at all, but from some far deeper, vaster part of space, you almost kind of get that feeling with this, too, that it's a conceptual leap in 1938 to go, well, the aliens aren't from Mars or Venus. They're from an entirely different solar system that we haven't even been able to conceive of. And somewhere along the way, they come to the conclusion that this thing has been encased in ice on the South Pole for 20 million years. Yes, whenever the pole started to freeze again, which uh, I'm not a geologist, so yeah, 20 million years sounds just about right. That's just the number that they throw out in the story. It is interesting, though. I mean, if you think about it, it's 1938. Antarctic expeditions aren't really new, right? You had Amundsen and Scott. They went to the South right. Pole in like the early 1900s, 1910s. But um, this is the time where you've got uh, Robert Byrd, right? The Byrd oh, right. expeditions in the early 30s. And you've got to imagine that those were all over the news, you know, the movie tone news clips of, you know, Admiral right. Byrd's expeditions to the Antarctic and, you know, look at all the cool footage. And you, you have to imagine that the way this story is written, that is heavily influenced by some of that. Well, and one of the cool things about the setting as well, so yeah, it's it's obviously a, a place that, that's in the popular imagination because of the explorations that are contemporary to uh, to Campbell as a, as a citizen of the U.S. at the time. But given the different places that we might go on the Earth that we haven't really 
explored as much as as the stuff that's closer and more familiar to us this is about as alien a landscape as we're going to get on the planet other than say being down at the bottom of the marianas trench or something like that or deep in some jungle that we haven't been to before so here we've got this this alien landscape that is somehow familiar to us because it's part of the earth but then it becomes the site for all of this stuff to happen and so there's we we're bringing together all of these different elements of the familiar and the unfamiliar in a pretty cool and interesting way yeah and and going back to what you had mentioned before how this has become such a a inspiration for other types of books and movies and film you know i, I think the the closest direct descendant of this that i would quote would be alien right the original yeah. alien movie where you talk about a couple of people trapped in an isolated environment fighting a supernatural alien force. I mean, that right there, it's a direct descendant from, from this story. Well, and the the series of films that have been made from, or I can't remember if it was originally a short story, and maybe it's one that we would want to look at, um, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was done as a classic B film, and then it's been remade a few times. You know, that, that notion that some alien life form might replace humans take them over or kill them and and you know take their take their shape and then move on and slowly infiltrate the planet i mean so yeah you you combine elements of alien and and body snatchers and you and yeah basically you get who goes there yeah and then like some other things the the idea that this alien's been buried in ice and we're gonna thaw it out and and bad things are going to happen. Well, you know, you see that in a whole bunch of other things. Even, you know, looking at some of the Lovecraft stories, he wrote a story called At the Mountains of Badness, which had this whole civilization buried in ice. Even, you know, talking about alien, alien versus predator, I think, starts in right. the Antarctic where somebody thaws out somebody and bad things happen. Now, I don't know if you ever saw, there was a movie called Rare Exports. It was a, a Christmas tale. It's a Finnish film with this really bizarre take on the Christmas story where Santa is like this evil creature buried in the Finnish ice landscape and the evil people are trying to thaw him out for nefarious purposes. It's a really strange movie, but I recommend it. And it's that weird movie. It's an homage to to this story that's um, the Horror Express. I think that's the one that had like Telly Savalas and Oh, it's weird, like zombies on a train, but they're not really zombies. They're they're animated corpses that are taken over by this alien thing that they pull out of the ice somehow. I think I have all that right. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. Needless to say... Accuracy is not our strong point on this <laughs> podcast, apparently. That's right. So lots and lots of things have come from this. Although I do remember in the thing, Wilford Brimley was in there with Kurt Russell, which always seemed like an odd casting choice for a horror science fiction well, movie. Well, Kurt Russell winds up playing McCready, so the bronze giant, imagine that as, as Kurt Russell instead, and and the biologist, the the, the little guy, is, is Wilford Brimley. So Wilford Brimley, yeah, in the movie, when they break into the hut in the movie, he looks like Wilford Brimley, and then he transforms into the thing. So and there, there's all kinds of homages to that movie in cinema, like most recently from what I just, just, just because I happened to see it not too long ago, um, one of the two episodes of It, when they redid that film as a two-part, there's a, there's a part where one of the characters head sprouts legs and starts chasing after them, and that's a direct homage to one of the scenes from the, from the 1980 two or 80, 85 version. Oh yeah. I'm sure there's all sorts of parodies and everything else out there that, you know, we, we could probably sit here for hours and talk about those Absolutely. things. Absolutely. You know, the, there's also some elements if, if you want to 
take a more classical literary turn on it, there's a little bit of a like Lord of the Flies thing going on here where, again, the, the pressure of being in a, in a situation where they're isolated and you know they're fending for themselves and now you add in the pressure of, oh, no, no, there's something that's trying to kill us. You know, they, they kind of break down and they, they, they start to, well, one, mistrust one another. That makes sense. They begin to fear each other. So it's basically like uh, reality TV or like Big Brother down in the Antarctic. With aliens. <laughs> With aliens. <That's> right. <laughs> oh, God, I, I, I think I know what next season's uh, Fox special is going to be. There you be. go. See, we got to be taking these ideas and, and, and like launching our own studio, Dan. It's Kickstarter campaign. I'm on it. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that, that made us chuckle just a little bit. We've already made reference to the manly men. <laughs> <laughs> the bronze giant. <laughs> oh, and, and the other guy, so Norris, they keep referring to him as, so if McCready is bronze, then this guy is steel. His eyes are steel gray and his beard is is somehow steel gray, and he has this iron resolve, and and he's also big and brawny and brawny, brawny and manly and muscular. So you've got these two hulking scientists that would never show up in a movie like The Revenge of the Nerds, at least not as scientists. But they are the they they're the the manly the testosterone leaders at least of the expedition. Oh, yeah, and of course, there's not a single woman to be had in the entire expedition, which, you know, again, right. 1938, not a big surprise. I don't even think there were any women in The Thing, the first movie, were there? No. I no, mean, I think in the 2011 all. version, they finally broke down and started including women as part of the plot line, but... Uh, right. I'm trying to remember. I think that the 2011 might have been set up as a either a prequel or a sequel to the the movie that was made in the 80s. That's entirely possible. I'll have to go look. It makes me want to go watch it now. So, yeah, you, you, so you've got that going on with, with the characterization of the people in the novella. And, you know, we talked about some of the other odd things going on, right? You've got the atomic generator, which, of course, is the, the big hand wavium thing that's really cool because atomic energy is cool. You know, there's just some odd things that we, we mentioned for instance, the spaceship being built out of magnesium, which to me makes no sense. And the idea that they, I don't know if they landed or crash landed, but this one alien just decided to hop outside in, you know, negative 60 degree temperatures and wander around to the point where he froze to death. I'm like, wait, you know, the, the aliens don't have thermometers. They can't look outside the ship. They were smart enough to get yeah, here. Yeah, but they can't figure out to yeah. not walk outside in below zero temperatures because they might freeze. That, that doesn't make any sense. Apparently, there are no alien meteorologists. Apparently not. So on that note, I found it really comical that, yeah, these aliens build a magnesium spaceship and travel untold miles or untold light years 20 million years ago crash land in, in our South Pole, bury themselves in the ice. And yet, uh, all this technology that gets them there, the guy, the guy, the, the, the thing is frozen in, in ice, apparently awake the entire time for 20 million years, just getting more and more pissed off, ready to tear something apart when he gets thawed out, and somebody, of course, thaws him out. And what does he begin to do as soon as he gets a chance? He gathers up a bunch, literally, of tin cans, canvas and some broken auto parts, and he builds an anti-grav generator and an atomic generator. <laughs> so there's some brilliance, despite the fact that it just doesn't, it doesn't equate to all of the other things that the thing has gotten wrong. 
that led it to this place in the story in the first place. And it's really weird. One other thing they talk about at the, I think it's the very beginning of the story, right? When they first unearthed it, they all had this feeling that this thing is, it's evil. It just looks evil. You look at the expression on its face and it's really pissed off. It's mad. And they go through, and to be fair, they do kind of go through a little bit of, hey, you can't determine, you can't judge an alien by its cover, right? You know, it may look pissed, but maybe that's its way of smiling. We don't really know. But, you know, by and large, at the very beginning of the story, they make this this thing out to be just like the most evil, malevolent force that they've ever run across in their life. Well, and they immediately jump to the conclusion that it's an alien. So there's this mass under the ice that they assume is a spaceship. Well, it does have three eyes and like blue tentacles for hair, and it's next to a spaceship. So eh, I can give him that. Well, well, that's where I was going with that, though. They, they never actually got a chance to examine the spaceship because they blew it up before they could get too close to it because the hull was made out of magnesium. So somehow, I mean, they determine all of this stuff just sort of because it makes sense to them. So, yeah. But again, it's one of those, you know, the magic of sci-fi and of, and of fiction where they, they come to these conclusions. And besides, you know, it's MacReady, the bronze giant. And, you know, they are on... As we said before, they're on their own. You know, they they don't have any, they can't call back to any experts in the field. They're just kind of looking at what they see and going, well, got to be this. Uh, no one is going to say no. I love it that there are stories now that, uh, like movies that have, that have come out where stuff happens and because of pop culture and because of science fiction, the characters in this story are equipped to come to these conclusions immediately. Oh, hey, it must be zombies. Oh, hey, it must be aliens. Like the movie, The World's End. Because there's been like 80 million zombie yeah. movies and we're all conditioned to know exactly what happens during exactly. one of them. Exactly. And we know what's going to happen during an alien invasion or we know that there are certain possibilities. I mean, like the, the movie signs, the... Don't go into the dark basement, Bill. Don't go into the dark basement. Right. But they always do. They never listen to the audience. Yeah. So speaking of patterns that we are falling into, I think that it's about time to do our patented whoa hmm, or what the fuck scale with this story. So what do you think about this one, Bill? I think this one's got a pretty healthy level of what the fuck going on with it. It certainly seems that way. There's a lot of cool but strange things that happen in it. The, The alien, all of his, well, all of his funky little powers are interesting, you know, being able to project thoughts, being able to change form, being able to take on the form of all these things that he has interacted with. And there's certainly a healthy level of what the fuck when it's, when you're trying to follow the actual story with all the different characters coming in and out and all the transitions. I mean, the first time I read this thing, I I literally, after I I finished the story, was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Of course, you know, subsequent readings make it a little bit more a little bit more understandable, but the first time through it, I was just trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah, it, yeah, I, I agree with you completely there. It was one of those stories where I had to read it a couple times to feel like I had a grasp on it. And and then I felt like I understood it even more when I watched the movie, despite the fact that there are differences between the film. I think Woe would also be applicable in a in a certain respect, simply because in we, we've talked about how in 1938, a lot of this stuff was pretty groundbreaking. And maybe nowadays being jaded by by decades of science fiction, we're, we're not inclined to look at it that way. But there's probably a certain woe factor that we should include. Oh, I'm with you there. And I, you know, the alien and all of the abilities that it demonstrates in terms of the science, you know, building its own little anti-grav machine and 
building its own little atomic generator out of tin cans and radio parts. Uh, yeah, there's 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 definitely a, a whoa kind of science fiction kind of thing going on there. So I think in summary, we'd Keanu would approve. <laughs> Indeed, he would. So yeah, whoa, or I'd say you know primarily what the fuck, a little bit of whoa, but uh, overall a good story. I'm with you there. And of course, as our listeners know by now, we are going to go into a little bit of what the next story is for the podcast. So, Bill, take us away. Yeah, next up we've got Murray Leinster's First Contact, which is, as it suggests, a story of an alien encounter. Just, well, not just like who goes there. It's an alien encounter of a different kind. (laughs) 